0: Um, you know, there's always these great debates. What is the most central trait and what, that, that everything else stems out of it? And I think the most common vote is, uh, is humility and everything stems out of there. Welcome, Yehuda. Thanks for being here. Um, and so uh, we're going to jump right in. You heard the introdu- you heard the bio of Rabbi Lauren Berman last time, so we won't do that each time, but uh, we're thrilled to learn from this scholar on this important topic. Session two of 10. Rabbi Berman, take it away. You're still on mute over
1: there. Yep. There, okay. Okay, yeah. here we go. Welcome. Welcome back, everyone. So nice to see uh, new faces and less new faces. And for those listening in, welcome. Uh, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here before. Today, we're going to focus on, as Rabbi Ishmael said, anava, or we'll translate it as humility, which is one of the first midot or character traits that the Musar master suggests focusing on. Before diving in headfirst into the midah of Anava, I want us to take just a few minutes to review some of what we covered last time, namely what is Musar, why cerebral Torah study as valuable and necessary as it is is insufficient, and the learning mindset that we learned about last week called Dut. So what is Musar? It is both a genre of literature and a practicing movement, or we can call it perhaps a movement of practice. As far as a distinct genre of literature, it goes back a millennia, and what the Musar masters did was they took teachings from the Talmud, select midot or characteristics that were clearly valued by the sages of the Talmud and the Torah, and they encouraged readers to improve their own characters and inner lives, either for its own sake and or as a means of getting closer to God. And until Rav Yisrael Salantar in the 19th century, Musar was mostly an individual course of study uh, and a contemplative practice. Uh, Rav Salantar lit the fire, we could say, which turned Musar into a movement turned Musar into a movement where people would practice in groups, not as individuals. There was an emphasis on both cognitive and behavioral change, not simply deep reflection, though that too. And he prescribed specific modalities, journaling, visualization, singing mantras, uh, deep intimate sharing, small actions, all of which have changed with the times in light of contemporary psychology um, in order to help achieve real change in a person. None of this was to take away from Talmudic or, or, or biblical study or halachic observance. It all goes hand in hand together, and knowledge of Torah was actually critical to ensuring that this was not simply a self-help, feel-good movement, but rather a deeply spiritual and religious uh, Jewish uh, practice as well. Regarding Torah study, regarding Torah study, we saw we saw three examples of the, from the Ramban, the Vilna Gaon, and the Nitziv. Um, about some of the, the shortcomings perhaps of, of pure Torah study and why something else um, in tandem with it is important. So we saw the Ramban's commentary on the verse that, that all of Israel is commanded to be holy and how this general verse commanding holy behavior and disposition can be seen as a sort of catch-all for you know, don't hide behind the Torah when acting like a jerk. Uh, the Torah as a written work can only contain so many guidelines for so many cases or situations. So you shall be holy, Kedoshim Tihiyu reminds us that there is a spirit behind the letter of the law, to use perhaps a non-Jewish language. Um, but the idea of the spirit of the law is actually, in itself, part of the letter of the law. Um, and this is one reason why Torah study may come up short one can still display unethical behavior that is not explicitly rejected by the Torah. And furthermore, there's something called holiness that we're supposed to strive for. And the definition or the parameters of what that is and how to get there isn't spelled out in the Torah itself. Uh, So the work actually to get to holiness may look different depending on the individual, but Musar is there to help fill the gap. That's the Ramban. We also saw the Vilna Gaon, and in commenting on a verse that compares Torah to rain he, we saw that he explains how rain will help grow whatever it lands on whether that thing it grows uh, lands on as wheat or fruit trees or even poisonous plants Torah helps us grow true but in what direction it takes two to tango we could say we have to be we have to be a proper vessel to grow made up of the proper measure or mida of qualities Surely we know people, perhaps ourselves, who are arrogant with their knowledge of Torah. And surely we know people who, in understanding truly how vast the Jewish bookshelf is, that they increase in their timidity vis-a-vis Torah learning. These are minor examples, perhaps, but the idea is there. That Torah is a catalyst for growth, but it can accentuate the good qualities one has or the less good. Musar is designed to make sure that our positive qualities are present when it begins to rain uh, as it were. And thirdly, we discussed the Nitziv who actually suggested something radical that the Jews during the second temple times, though they were knowledgeable in Torah, though they were righteous, that they would actually be suspicious of fellow Jews who they thought were deviants or heretics and they would spill each other's blood. And that led to the temple being destroyed. But God saw these righteous individuals, not as righteous, but as crooked, and even as they thought they were fighting for God's ways, Lashem Shamayim, though they were very learned in Torah, deep down, they felt hatred towards others and did not recognize that this hatred, rather than, idea, rather than, rather than some sort of ideological purity or principles, that this hatred was driving their suspicions of fellow Jews. And Rav Yisrael Salanter, who we read about last time, alludes to the unconscious and the need to bring it out. Musar, perhaps would have helped these Jews uncover what was really bothering them. Once again, Torah fluency on its own is not enough. And lastly, from last week, most importantly, we explored the concept of dut from Rav Shlomo Wolby's Aleh Shur. Hitlamdut, again, to, to be constantly learning, an active learning mindset. The idea that literally everything and every person in every moment has something to teach us, something positive to teach us, and we need to cultivate a practice of learning. What are three things I learned from the way my friend carries herself in the world? What are three things today I learned from the barista at the coffee shop from the way that he poured my coffee? And what can I learn from the way that bees interact with each other and the pollen and the hives? What can I learn from bees? And, and, and lastly, what we talked about is what, what about the people I disagree with? What is something helpful that I can learn from them. Something positive I can learn from even the people I disagree with, which can be uncomfortable. Heat dut, always learning. We're always learning a curious mindset, a beginner's mindset. Every moment, every success, every failure is an opportunity to learn something. And especially when we think we can't learn anything, that's when we need to work on flexing the heat Lamdut muscle a little bit more. And don't worry, there's no, no need to worry about injury here. That's a joke. Don't know if you're laughing, but I thought it was cute. Anyways, moving on. So here's our plan for today. We are going to uh, learn about humility. Um, And I'm going to go back and forth calling it humility or calling it anava. Um, The truth is, is the word humility, I don't think is a great way to describe what this Jewish concept of anava uh, really is. But for now, let's call it humility. Um, The Hebrew word, I think, is much more revealing. But let's focus on the English word humility as a word for a few minutes. So. This is a little graph that I'm showing you on the screen here. Um, and for those listening, I'm going to explain it. This is the how we got uh, this word humility, a bit of the history. So uh, when we think of humility, I imagine that a lot of us think of lowliness or a sense of not deserving something, of not really being so great at something, of imposter syndrome, perhaps. Indeed, the word itself, humility, suggests this. It comes from the Latin humilus. Uh, I don't speak Latin, uh, but this is what I read. Um, that it comes from the Latin for humilis, which is related to a word that's connected to soil, which is humus, not humus, although there might be a connection, but humus. Um, in other words, to be humble is to be connected to the soil. To be humble is to be connected to the ground, literally in the very word. And it also, I believe, shares a root with again with the word human. Right, we are created from the ground, from the Adama, Right, as Genesis, as Bereishit says. So on some level. To be humble, using this word humble, is in our nature. It reflects our nature. We are lowly, which humilis can also mean. And we are earthbound. Adam, adama, human humility. If you've ever been uh, flying or around the world, um, I love to travel. Um, I spent a summer in Ghana. I've gone to India, to Ethiopia, uh, to Myanmar, which is very problematic right now um, and has been for a while. You sort of see how big the world really is, whether you're flying or whether you're just interacting with people from different cultures and religions, to see how big the world is and how complicated and diverse it is, I think it really gives you a sense of perspective, actually, a very humbling perspective that really we are so small, right? And to imagine that in the grand scheme of things, we might actually be like ants, very small. And this can be very grounding. Um, Sometimes it even makes me question what I know and even how significant I am. But despite how large the world might be, and how small I might be, despite all of that, there's more to it in the Jewish tradition. Um, we know right that we are from Adama, right, from the ground, but the Musar masters teach us, pulling from the verse in Isaiah, uh, Yeshayahu, that we are also not only Adama, but we are Adama, Adama adamah is ground, Adamah is to be similar to Elyon, to the on high. We can either be on the ground, Adama, or we can be Adame. We can be more like God, right? We have two choices, rather two poles we can sort of surf between. We can be Adama, we can be Adame. We can be lonely, or we can be up there with the most high. The Hebrew for the word humility, Anava, not to be, cons- not to be confused with Adama, Anava, rather than focusing on our lowly nature, actually encourages a healthier balance and highlights the potential we have as humans. The Hebrew word for humility, as I said, anava. We'll see the etymology of anava and what that can teach us about the Jewish approach to humility. But first, a brief summary of what we are dealing with conceptually. Conceptually, what is, what is this idea of, of, uh, of anava? So if you see the screen, you'll notice that there's a spectrum here. On one hand, we have, let's say on the far left side, we have shvelut, which we can define as lowliness perhaps even a sense of depression, not clinically, right? But, but an overall sense of, of low self-esteem of, of where am I? Do I have a role in this world? I am nothing. On the other hand, we have GAVA or GAIVA, which is a sense of, uh, I would say undue pride, arrogance, narcissism, right? And if on one end we have lowliness, on the other hand, we have arrogance, ANAVA, humility actually falls in between, It's not some, sometimes people would think of Anava as I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And that's more maybe connected to the Shvelut. But when we're talking about in Musar about what Anava is, that's actually not it, right? In this model, someone with Anava, they are not on the left. They are not Shafel. They are not lowly. They know their worth. They own up to their achievements and they may even celebrate them. They don't deny what they are and what they've done, but they don't quite move to the right side of the pole of arrogance and narcissism either because they know two things. First, they know that they did not do this alone. There are other people, other beings, divine namely, Hashem, right? That enabled them to arrive to where they find themselves. They did not do this alone. And second, they acknowledge that they have been given a gift. I don't like to use the word potential or fulfill potential. It sounds a little culty, but it's true. It's true. Right? That we've been given different tchuno, different uh, qualities, contents, different potentials, all of us, right? And, and and when we've achieved something, we've been given the gift of that potential and we fulfilled it. And now that we have fulfilled it, we need to continue doing so. We have found our calling in a certain sense. So we don't arrive at the sense of narcissism and arrogance because we know that Hashem helped us get there, that other people helped us get there, and that all the things that we have, including our abilities. Are actually gifts. And we are just simply fulfilling our role in in actually taking advantage of those gifts and making the world a better place through them. That's how I look at myself with when I have Anava. But how do we look at others when we have Anava? In the words of Rabbi Sachs, blessed memory, with Anava, you can see other people and value them for what they are. They're not just a series of mirrors at which You look only to see your own reflection, he says. Secure in yourself, you can value others. Confident in your identity, you can value the people not like you. Humility is the self turned outward. It is the understanding that it's not about you. And in one quote I heard, um, I don't know who said it, I read at some point, Rick Warren said it, but I'm sure somebody said it before him, but that Anava is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking less about yourself. Ruff Kook uh, has a great expression. He has a great expression for, uh, for the difference between humility, which we would say, anava is in the middle of the spectrum, and self-abasement, shvelut, um, at the other end. And he says, whenever humility brings uh, sadness or melancholy, if anava brings that, if humility brings that, it's puzzle, it's no good, it is invalid. Out of here. I cannot have it. But when, when you have a kosher anava, when you have an anava that is the proper uh, measure of anava, you end up having more simcha, more joy, more strength, and more uh, inner honor, more self esteem. Humility, then, anava, is meant to motivate us, not to subdue us. It's to help us get higher and higher off the ground right? Humility is supposed to sort of move us from our humble origins rather than to keep us on the ground. And as Rev Elyakim Crumbine um, in the Gush, who, who, who speaks a lot about Musar, especially his book called Musar for Moderns, he says, All humility is based on a holy feeling of greatness. He's echoing Rev Cook here, but that humility is based on a holy feeling of greatness. So, Rabbi Micha Berger says, um, oh, so I guess we, so. We have we have this general idea, right, for what anava means. But what about the word itself? Where does it come from, anava, and what does it teach us? The word anava comes from the root for one, or to answer, which is a little funny at first glance. I would think humility would tell me, shh, keep quiet, right? You, it's not your turn right now. It's somebody else's turn. Keep quiet. So what does answering have to do with humility? So Rabbi Micha Berger, who's a contemporary Musar thinker, has a great blog called Eshtas. He says something very interesting. He says, and it's on the screen. When we are conversing with someone, do we spend the whole time searching for launching points for what we want to say? Or do we actually listen to appreciate what they're trying to relate? The first stance is the hubris of believing that what we have to say and contribute is primary. Certainly, my insight is brighter, my interpretation more inspiring, in my perspective, more valuable. The root of the Hebrew word for humility, anava, is la'anot, which means to answer, as we said. When the humble person speaks, they participate as one component of the whole. They truly respond. In other words, now this is me speaking. What is distinct about the anav, about the humble person, is that they answer, which implies there's another party they're interacting with if they were merely uh, speaking, then that could be a one-way interaction and one that could be divorced of any relationship. But Musar at the core is meant to cultivate relationship. To answer someone means you see them and you are in direct dialogue with them. Rabbi David Jaffe, another contemporary Musar thinker, he makes this very practical, makes this very practical. um, And he applies the Midav Anava of humility to social action. He says, when we respond or answer to the demands of the moment with a sense of service and without the arrogance or inflated sense of our importance, we are acting with humility. It is about finding the proper relationship between ourselves and the world around us. About not taking up so much space, but taking up the space that's needed. It is a spectrum. On one hand, on one end is arrogance as we said, and on the other is low self-esteem. Our work is to figure out how much to insert ourselves into any particular situation, depending on the need of the moment, knowing the amount of space to take up in a given, on a given issue. Meaning to be an Anav, to be a humble person, means that we respond to the moment. What that response will be precisely depends on the individual and the scenario. But a humble person in an Anav knows that some response is necessary That response is a form of service. And we need to know how much of ourselves to insert and how much to let others take the lead. We'll see a one-line mantra of sorts from Alan Marinus uh, later in our session. I want you to think for a moment, perhaps you could put in the chat. If you think of those in the Torah or those in the Talmud or rabbinic literature who are full of anava, who are full of humility, who are some that come to mind I'll watch the chat just for just for about, you know, 20 seconds. Job. Thank you, Eileen. Job is a humble person in your eyes. Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, our teacher, our master. Great. Ruth. Shavuot's coming up as well. Yeah. Who else exhibits Anava in the way that we've been describing it? It's a great start. So we have Job, we have Moshe Rabbeinu, we have Ruth, and we're going to indeed talk about Moshe Rabbeinu very soon. Um, very soon. Joseph. Interesting. Yeah, maybe because ultimately, maybe he starts with a little bit less on Avah, but ultimately he comes around. Abraham. Yeah, let's just throw in all the forefathers and four mothers. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, although maybe they don't all have on Avah, I'm not sure. Great. So let's go. With, let's go. We're, going to, we're going to cover Avraham as well, Abraham as well. So the word anav or anava appears multiple times in Tanakh. We're not going to go through all of them, um, but including Proverbs and Psalms and Mishle and Tehillim, in each case makes it clear. Each case makes it clear that humility is a foundational midah, and it leads to great things like honor, wealth, and long life. This highlights once again, that humility is not meant to keep us down. It's meant to be creative, it's meant to have generative potential. Anava is supposed to be creative um, in its very nature. So Musar is, is best learned with stories. Uh, so let's, let's, let's go with Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, he's a lot of things, but to my knowledge, the Torah only really uses one adjective, I think, to describe Moshe and surprise, surprise, it is Anav. He is Anav mikol Adam. He is the most humble of all human beings. Moshe, Mikol Adam. he's more humble than anyone else in the world. If we look at Moshe though, he's a superstar, right? But I mean, on one level, it's not surprising that we think he's humble, right? He tries to steer clear of power. He's concerned about his, his you know, stutter or lack of verbal prowess, but please just, just send someone else, right? The job's not, this is not a good job for me. I can't do this. And yet he does it. Moshe Rabbeinu does it. When he sees injustice, When he sees injustice, he fights it, whether on behalf of the Jews alone, right, or others. He is aware of his flaws and shortcomings on the one hand, but that awareness does not interfere with his ability to get the job done. And he credits God for his success, as we see with, with Joseph as well. From this perspective, he's a great model for Anava. He knows his role. He fulfills it. He seeks to empower others, and he doesn't pat himself on the back for his success looking at where we call him, anavnikol adam, that's interesting. It adds another dimension, I think, to his anavah. It's when Miriam and Aaron, right, brother and sister, speak against Moshe because of his Kushite, or perhaps his black wife. And there's punishment that goes around for this offense, this offensive and potentially racist claim, right? God hears these claims. And then Moses is called Anav Mikol adam, the most humble. Is God randomly saying that Moshe is humble? Or is there something about this context, about Moshe's behavior in this moment, that's particularly demonstrative of anavah? Rashi on this verse points out that Moshe's anava is being exhibited through his patience. Or in Hebrew, he's shafel v'savlan. He's lowly and bearing. He's bearing significant weight in this moment. Ibn Ezra understands anava as being an expression of inshallah of being at peace, untroubled. And that's shown by his lack of need to gain honor or to reclaim honor in this moment over his siblings. He didn't need to fight Moshe. He's confident in some sense. He he doesn't need to fight for some badge or restore some sense of pride. He sits there as his brother and sister are speaking uh, and negatively in this way, he sits there, he's at peace, he's untroubled, he's resisting aggression. He's bearing the pain of his siblings, they're probably in pain, but not reacting. If you've ever been bullied, as I have, you know that the confident effective response, as long as you're not being physically, uh, physically bullied, which maybe there's a different response, but in general, when it comes to verbal bullying, at least the way I learned it, was to either A, ignore the bully, which is not to say Aaron and Miriam are bullies, but just, just go with me for now, right? It's either to ignore the bully or, You nod your head and you say okay thanks or maybe don't say thanks that might make them angry but you just say okay and that's it right this display actually can actually this this can actually show positive self-esteem right like what does the bully do now uh i'm not getting the reaction i was hoping for right it's displaying confidence without arrogance right this is what healthy humility or anava is all about and what moshe exemplifies in this moment here there are a couple other characters in the Torah I want us to highlight for their anavah. The first is perhaps a surprising one, and nobody said this in our chat, but it's actually a Kaddish Baruch about God. God is actually an anav. I don't think God is described as an anav, but if we say that God is an anav, that God is humble, that Hashem is humble, then when we are being humble ourselves, we are actually imitating God. So where does God show anavah? Hashem shows anavah when God changes God's mind in a number of places. But I wanna focus on Bereshit in the very beginning. And there are two angles I want us to approach Hashem Zanavah here. One is the creation of the world and two is creation of mankind. I imagine some of us have studied this with Rosh or some of the amazing presenters of the Midrash. But according to the mystical tradition, when God was creating the world, God's presence was too strong to fit in the world itself. Imagine it's like this huge ball of like concentrated energy, just this overwhelming presence. So what does God do? God takes a step back as it were. God does what's called simsum. He's God's Mitzam Tsim God self. God actually reduced God's own presence in the world. God made space for something else to be created. Had God not, had God not stepped back, Nothing would be able to be created. God's presence would just be too powerful. It would just burn everything in sight. So God actually made space for something else to be created. To take a back seat and allow someone else to take over is a divine quality. Hashem is compassionate and kind and merciful and truth and might and so much more. And God is also humble. God steps back so we can step up. We can think about that, not just cosmologically, but also in our own work. When there's an injustice or a need to be filled, God is not going to take care of it for us. When God reduces the concentration of God's presence in this world, it enables us to step up, and when we can step up, we can grow. As a a side point, there is the idea of chavruta, of learning in partners. In Torah learning, we do not learn alone. We learn in chavruta because Torah learners sharpen each other through their learning. When we allow someone else into our learning space, we listen to what they have to say. We admit we don't have all the answers. Together, we come to a deeper understanding of the text we study than either of us would be able to have come to alone. Again, making space doesn't mean less for us. It actually allows us, we, in other words, we can grow when we are smaller. To him is one instance in Bereshit where Hashem displays Anava. Another is when Hashem is creating humankind. Hashem says, Let us make Adam in our image as our likeness. Who's God talking to here? The Midrash explains Hashem was consulting with Hashem's heavenly counselor, angelic support. Hashem didn't have to do this. God has all the power in the world. And yet, we learn from this that the more powerful one is, the more they must consult with those who are less wise. The more space one can and usually takes up, the more they can afford to give up. Related to our points about Hitlam last week, this reminds us that we are all capable of mistakes and we can all learn from those who might be lower on some measure than we are. So Hashem's anava is shown both in Hashem's simtzum, or self-reduction of God's presence to make room for the world to be created and in consulting before creating the first human being. And this is one of God's strengths, as the Talmud says, wherever we find God's greatness, we also find God's humility. We've seen Moshe as an anav, we've seen Hashem as an anav, and now in a backwards way, we're going to see Avraham Avinu, who one of us mentioned in the chat, as an anav too. And Alan Marinus has really popularized the next, you know, teaching or so, so I'm especially indebted to much of the work he's done to help bring these to light in the context of Anava. There's a teaching in the Talmud. And it goes as follows. Rabbi Chelbo said that Rav Huna said, one who sets a fixed place for his prayer or her prayer, the God of Abraham assists them when they die. Those who eulogize them, the one who set a fixed place for their prayer set th- that the people are going to say about them, where is the humble one? Where is the Anav? Where is the pious one of the disciples of our father, of Abraham, of Abraham? There are two things I want to unpack here. One." is Abraham as an anav. And two, is what any of this has to do with anavah. Avraham isn't described as an anav, I don't think, those words. But if you recall, when Hashem threatens to destroy stone and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Avraham challenges God, right? Avraham challenges God, uh, you know, will not the judge of the whole world act justly? Get it together. What's going on here? And yet, right after that, Avraham reminds God that he knows Avram knows that he himself is but dust and ashes I you know I am challenging you on one hand and on the other hand I know I'm but dust and ashes this is very similar to how we've how we've been describing healthy anava until now I'm sorry about this uh, thing blocking the text um, just so if we can cut this out of the recording I'm sorry about this thing blocking the text here so he knows, That he has the power to protest in the ear of Hashem, the reality of his ultimate insignificance. The closer one is to God, whether they're Moshe or Avraham, the more they really know their place and significance or insignificance. So Avraham fulfills his potential and his obligations, but he does not feel pride for doing so. That's Avraham and Anava for one. There's another link between Avraham and Moshe, by the way. Both answer a call to action from Hashem with the words Hineni, here I am. It's interesting that it translates here I am, not I am here, right? I am here would, 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 would imply a focus on the self, but here I am focuses on the situation of where someone needs to be. Rabbi David Jaffe explains, Hineni means you are ready to put aside your own agenda and respond to what you are being called to do. It also takes great presence to be able to hear that call. To be an Anav, requires an element of sacrifice to respond to a call that may be inconvenient or challenging, but the fact that you have a calling to do that means you are capable of doing so. The second part of the Gemara I want to understand together is what it has to do with humility, with anava. I'm not sure about you, but I have seen some really unfortunate, I've had some really unfortunate experiences with people in shul and their makom kavua, their fixed seat, it is a halacha concept to have a makum kavua, to have a fixed seat in shul. Um, but let me tell you, especially being a guest, sometimes it's sure when somebody comes to tell you to get up. This is my seat. It's like, hey, like the whole entire shul is empty here. Like, why don't you take another seat? Like, I'm a guest. Um, in this text, though, we are told that one who makes themselves a makom kavua, a fixed place for prayer, is to be considered humble, humble like Abraham Abinu. What is so anava filled? about putting one's flag down, claiming a space to daven at the exclusion of others. Alan Morinis points out that when one says this seat is mine, what they're also saying is all those other seats in shul and synagogue, those are not mine. So in the same way that God did seem to him to create the world by defining which space is God's and which space is not, when one establishes their own fixed seat in prayer, they are not only defining a certain space as their own, they are also giving space to others. The humble one knows exactly how much space to take, how little, and when. As Rabbi Micha Berger, who I'll quote again, says, the arrogant ones on the one side of the spectrum believe that the best world is one with the most of them in it. They deserve that seat. They deserve that seat. And maybe they'll put their books and coats in talit and on another chair, spread out a bit. One of my pet peeves personally is when people use uh, in an Orthodox synagogue, the women's side for like their coat rack. No, you put it on the coat rack or just put it on your own chair. Don't spread out like you own the place. Where That was my, uh, my editorial and Reverend Michael Berger continues. Whereas the Anaf knows they fit in a larger scheme of things. Therefore, rather than trying to impose their view or their presence, physical or emotional, they perfect the world by seeing how they are supposed to fit, what their place is. I'd like to ask, can reflect on this, when are the times we might want to apply some of these lessons? Perhaps when one of us is, I guess the word is, is man spreading, spreading our legs too wide on the subway or the train, taking up literally more than one seat when we don't have to. Or when we assume someone doesn't know something and we assume it as an opportunity to share how much we know. Or maybe with my roommate and my housemates or my spouse, am I keeping my my mess in my own room or am I spreading it out a little bit too much in group conversations? How much am I speaking? How often am I speaking? When am I speaking simply because I want to relate to someone else or something someone else said and support what they're saying? And when am I speaking simply because I want to share how much I know and I want to impress other people? When I don't participate in a conversation, why am I not participating? Do I feel intimidated by the others there? Is there a gender dynamic at play? Do I feel like I know less? Is it perhaps time for me to step up a little bit more knowing that others will in fact benefit from what I have to say? I see some in the chat wrote when driving, Yeah. Um, I'm really curious to hear more. Um, Judy, if you could just share when driving, can you say how how you either take up too much space or too little space on the road?
2: Well, if we always feel we have to be pulling in front of someone else to get where we want before they do, I think that that shows a lack of humility.
1: Great. Yeah. And I would say this probably also applies to the grocery store. You know, am I, am I, am I taking my, how, how, you know, am I really sort of taking my my card around and and trying to bump into other people? Am I trying to cut other people in line, or am I just waiting patiently? And this maybe goes to the to of patience, but I think it equally goes to like when I'm in a public space, how much of the space really am I meant to take up? How much space is there for me? Alan Marinus has a great has a great um has a great saying. No, it's ten words. Magic ten. No more than my space, no less than my place. This in one, you know, on one foot one even one toe uh, is is what humiliar Anava is in his mind and I think we've seen some texts which which actually do support this right no less than my space sorry no more than my space no less than my place so there are a number of other texts um, I want us to look at but but actually I, I'd rather just do a bit more of a discussion in just a few minutes um, but first I actually just want to in the spirit of, 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 uh, of Passover, of Pesach, which we just, um, which we just passed, um, there's an amazing, as as many of us know, there's, there's the, the saying that we need to see ourselves as if we left Egypt, right? That, that every individual must see themselves as if they lived in Egypt. Rabbi Asher Freund, uh, Freund, who is a a real bal really like many gibilud chasadim and acts of kindness in Yerushalayim. He actually um, has a beautiful, I saw this online, a beautiful, uh, uh, take on this, he he re, he repunctuates the verse. Uh, sorry, the 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 teaching so that um, it comes to teach something. I think about anava, which again, if we're if we're if we're if, if anava is really about taking up only the amount of space that we are meant to take up, right? And when we are not taking up enough space to take up more, and we take up too much space to actually try and, and focus on taking up less space, anava in that sense is actually having an accurate. To picture an accurate perspective of who we are. Um, So he says the following He says, People ask to see Elijah the prophet. I bless them that they'll be able to see themselves, right? That actually people that we can see ourselves accurately, not looking at ourselves as if we're less than we are, and not looking at ourselves as if we are more than we are. As it says, a person must see themselves, period, comma, and then it will be as if they left Egypt. Chayavadam lerotat ve'az ki'ilu Once we see ourselves, pause, then we will emerge from whatever slavery, perhaps slavery of, of the ego or lack thereof, of insecurity. right? Once we see ourselves for who we are and that we are a gift and that we do have potential that Hashem has given us and we experience some sort of gratitude for all of that, once we have an accurate uh, vision image of who we are that's when we will actually be liberated so that's um, that's what I prepared for today um, I want to ask the for, first before going into general reflections I would like to, to ask the group um, and for us to share um, first of all um, there's actually a teaching by Ravulbi who says uh, I think he might even quote a teacher of Yerucham um, Leibovich I believe uh, and he says that before focusing on anything negative about ourselves, any negative qualities, we have to first acknowledge the positive qualities of ourselves. That is the actually that's the first thing we have to do. Musar is not about, oh, you know, how can I improve? I'm, I'm so, you know, there's so much to improve. First, I need to actually own the, the, the positive elements of, of my own. Um, so, so first, I want us to think about um, where do you feel take a few answers here. Where do you feel like I'm actually doing a pretty good job with humility? And, and you can say that. You can say, like, I'm good with humility. Like, that's an appropriate thing to say. Uh, to say I'm the most humble of everyone else, that's maybe, you know, comparative. And that, that gets us into, you know, trickier territory. But just to say, like, I feel comfortable with the way I am in the spaces that I'm in, where I do take up the proper amount of space. Um, and I do give others space when I feel like they can't take it and I need to offer it to them or um, where I'm taking up too much space, I back up. So where do you feel like you're doing a good job with this? Let's just take some, some, uh, some you know, some, some folks, some, some opinions from the, from the group. Where do you feel like you're doing a good job with this? We can also we can also focus on when we're not doing such a good job. Sometimes uh, losses loom larger than gains, and those are easier to recall. Um, would you like to say pick another? We can we can we can as well discuss. You know when is it that you feel like you're actually taking up too much space or too little space? You can either one.
2: I think for me, sometimes um, when I'm with certain people in certain conversations, I speak very little because I don't know. I'm not educated or informed on the topic
1: about which they're speaking, or if it's, if it's a somewhat heated conversation, you know, I just kind of take a step back, but I guess it's my comfort level. It it sounds like in a heated conversation that might actually be the right move. Right. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not supposed to enter that conversation right now Mm -hmm. um, perhaps so that that, that I would say is an answer to the first question, which is what are you doing? Well, um, as the situations where you don't feel like you're really holding or you're not really sort of, uh, you know, in the know um, that's a question, which is, you know, is it appropriate? Is it the appropriate time to ask? um, You know, to ask clarifying questions Um, or maybe, maybe it is like, Oh, this conversation is for the big leagues and I'm supposed to spectate right now. I think, yeah, it depends. Yeah. I found as a a manager
2: and as a, And as a parent, uh, the harder and better thing to do is to give people space to do what they need to do without necessarily giving them my opinion or my presence. And holding back as a parent is not easy, even as they become adults. But um, you can talk yourself into it.
1: So there's a transition of, of when when kids become older, you know, what's my role as a parent in advising them, um, or or sort of let, letting them sail on their own, is that is that what I'm hearing?
2: Well, yeah, I, I obviously it's kind of a, a balancing game. I feel like I do a good job, but if you talk to my kids, they might have a different take on it. Uh, I try not to be the the supervising parent, and I try it as a manager not to be the one who's up over one shoulder i let you know what my expectations are i hold you to them but i don't hover because nobody wants to be uh micromanaged it's not fun
1: right it, it sounds like in, in the most you know sort of uh divine parenting way of, of team soon sometimes there's a time to actually you know limit our presence so they can grow they can make their decisions and learn from them for better or for worse.
0: Well, it, it does feel hard to talk about the positive side, but since that's the ex- exercise, I certainly have tons of work on all the me do humility, most certainly. Uh, but to po- po- focus on two possible positive ones, one is um, I know I you know I know a lot of reformed Jews who only want to re- uh, learn from Reform scholars. I know a lot of Orthodox Jews who only want to learn from Orthodox scholars. I know liberals who only want to listen to liberals and conservatives. Conservatives. And I really do feel, even though I have strong views politically, religiously, whatever, I really do uh, enjoy learning from people of different views. Um, And that feels like a certain type of uncertainty, even while I I sit with strong views. So that's one I would say that I try to cultivate and that VBM is about also. Um, And I think on the on the on the family side, I have young kids and sometimes foster kids. And, uh, and when they get upset, they, um, they, can, get, they can get upset. And, and, and uh, rather than feel like, hey, um, I'm not at wrong here, or you shouldn't yell at me. It's just kind of humbling to realize like, what it means to be a parent and, and the job of a, of a child and my job to be a parent in the room. Um, and it's okay to be yelled at sometimes. It's not personal.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Rishmeli. Other thoughts from folks? Either, either, where you feel like I'm doing a pretty good job here, or you know what, I could take up a little bit less, take up a little bit more.
0: Oh, okay. So, oh, oh, so oh, we can say the critical too.
1: Yeah, of course. Oh, sorry, of course. I missed
0: that part. So that I should certainly do that. Yeah. Um, and here, and here, the list can go on. Um, I think that you said of Adam Liro that smo. That person is obligated to see themselves. Um, I do think that um, that. That I I struggle with the bridge, but with the with the tension between self awareness, and um, yeah, and thinking too much about the self. Like you want to be self aware, but when does self become self absorption rather than self awareness? And so um, you know, how am I affecting people? Then I start to think about myself and what I'm doing. And so, anyways,
1: Mm. we we learned something. Hi, Alex, welcome. Um, we we learned something in uh, in rabbinical school actually that. You know, before speaking, basically they told us rabbis talk too much. Rabbis need to learn how to quiet down a little bit. Um, whenever speaking, we should always ask ourselves, wait, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? And there's a whole flow chart uh, if you Google it. Um, essentially, you're supposed to ask before we say anything, like actually, like, why am I saying what I'm about to say? Um, am I saying it just because like, I believe it's a truism and, and it needs to be said? Um, am I speaking because I'm trying to make an impression on somebody else? I'm trying to to, to, to uh, like, am I, am I really speaking more for myself or more for other people? Um, I think that's possibly connected to the sort of the self-awareness for self-absorption, just for being mindful about when I am speaking, why am I saying what I'm saying and who am I trying to impact? Um, yeah, Alex, did you want to say something? No, I just really enjoyed the talk so far. I had to step away for a moment, but it's been very um, powerful to listen to a lot of these statements. So thank you. Great. Well, I think, um, you know, I think this this Mida is really, um, it's unclear to me sometimes, you know, when we're talking to to contemporary folks, you know, do we feel like we have too much humility or not enough humility? Um, Perhaps in different roles, we feel differently. I feel like a lot of the the more traditional scholars um, oftentimes assume we have too much humility, and we need to to really lower ourselves. Um, and, And indeed, I think that that is still applicable to many of us at many times. Um, but one thing I, I really do appreciate about, appreciate about like sort of the, the malleability of Musar and how it is very much responding to the times, but rooted in Torah, um, is that it's, it's responding to where people are at right now. And so if you look at a lot of more modern Musar literature, a lot of it is, you know, sensitive to um, perhaps gender dynamics um, where, where where women don't necessarily feel as comfortable speaking up in certain settings. Um, I was dealing with this with, with another project where, you um, Uh, I was, I was called out, um, you know, privately, which I I appreciate private call outs more than public call outs, uh, where somebody said, Oh, like your, your, your panel or your group of, uh, of of individuals, you know, the gender imbalance is not appropriate. Um, And so I said, well, listen, like I I did the math and I, and I reached out to, 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 uh, you know, to folks equally. Um, So I'd assume mathematically that I would get equal responses. And the fact that I didn't, you know, I tried, and they said, well, actually, you have to probably, if you want more women than men uh, in, your, in your speaker series, then you need to actually reach out to more women than men because oftentimes they're not as responsive um, or don't feel like it's their place to speak on a certain issue. Um, so you actually need to overcompensate for how many people you're reaching out to. I think you know, modern Musar um, you know, actually speaks to that. And it's actually encouraging many of us to step up more um, than to step back, I think, as our worlds get so much larger and we see all the injustices in the world and news is at the, you know, our fingertips, like it can oftentimes feel on the one hand, like we're really connected to things, but also that we don't really have a role. Um, and there's just so much like stimulation. Um, so I do wonder sometimes when, um, you know, when, there's, when, there, when there are too many sort of choices, um, too many issues to address, do we sort of just take a step back altogether and say, you know, someone else will take care of it. Um, something I think about sometimes when, when talking about humility, um, in the space that we take up.
2: It's very interesting in, that in this conversation, Randy said that she's hesitant to talk because she feels she's not as knowledgeable, yet I have always found her to be sensible and uh, just her her decency goes down to the bone. And I think that that's got to trump quantity of factual knowledge uh, many times. And I think that may be what, a lot of women feel like you know. I I know what makes sense, but I don't always know what to cite to, which mm. is more of the tradition. Mm. Judy, thank you. We go way back, don't we?
1: <laughs> it reminds me of a of a story. Um, maybe we we'll, maybe with this, with, with this uh, we can close. Um, I was learning in, uh, in yeshiva, my night seder, my night my night um, my night Talmud study, uh, chavruta study partner. Um, was somebody who had, he had won Chidon Hatanach, which is like the, the global Bible competition, and you know he read he read the Gemara, he read the Talmud like a children's book, and you know I, I was not quite there in, in my learning. I'm still not quite there in my learning, um, but I remember we would study together, and I I would ask him one time I said I said you know Menachem same as Menachem he left me for 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 a more uh, more radical a more more uh, more intense shiva. I said, Menachem, like, what? Well, you know, you won this, you know, you won this award and that award, and you can do this learning and that learning, you're, you know, top of your class. Like, why, why do you like to study with me? And he said something, um, which some might consider creepy. I thought it was very nice. Um, and he said, he said, um, said he said, I, I like, I like the sound of your voice when you read. And I thought that was very interesting um, You know, I think that that reminded me that we bring different things to the table um, in all of our interactions. Um, Some people just value knowledge and facts, right? Um, But in this Havruta case, like, you know, would it be nice if if we were at the same level? Sure. Um, But the idea that somebody who I thought, you know, like, what is he doing with me, right? Actually saw something in myself that I totally did not see. um, I think was very powerful. Um, and I think that's, that's to some extent, you know, what we should think about with humility, which is thinking of ourselves, um, as first of all, very complex beings with different things to bring to the table, um, and different people value different things. Um, and so in this particular case, he valued my voice. I valued his learning, um, and we made a great pair. Um, and that for me was enough to feel like, okay, like I belong in this chabrutah. He values me. I value him. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a very nice story. And, uh, and with that, I, uh, I will close, uh, Rav Shmule, do you have any, uh, any closing words?
0: As always, uh, a great delight, a great delight to learn with you. And, um, you want to give us a heads up on what the midah is next week. Or are you saving it?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, next week we're going to focus on the midah of gratitude. Um, and all of these, you know, there's going to be sort of review in some sense of all these, like to be humble, I mean, to be grateful, you have to be humble to some extent. Um, but we will be learning about gratitude, um, or in Hebrew, which isn't quite gratitude. It's, it's recognizing the good literally. Um, so we will, we will go into that um, next week. And, and, and for this week, um, if you didn't, um, for this past week, sort of try to notice when you were able to learn something, um, I encourage you to do that. Um, again, learning from the small things, um, from nature, from other people, uh, for people you interact with, um, what are the small things you are learning from? Um, and if it's not too much, um, just to notice just to notice when, um, when you are not taking up space that you feel like you would like to, or when you feel like you're taking up more space and it's more self-driven than for, than for the sort of the group that you're in. Um, just to notice that. And if you're able to, to, to overcome that, like all the better. But the first step I think is to just notice um, that really I should be doing more. I can't be doing more. Why am I not doing more or less? Um, just noticing things is the first step in Musar before actually um, developing you know, some sort of you know, behavioral, uh, behavioral change.
0: Great. Friends, just a few things coming up on Monday. We're learning with Rabbi Dorothy Richmond on the Mida of Cultivating Trust. Uh, exploring the writings of Eti Hillesum. We've had her at VBM before. She's wonderful. And also next week, we have a famous scientist, Dr. Michael Shermer, speaking on Skepticism 101, How to Think Like a Scientist. And my my weekly, uh, the 40 greatest debates in Jewish history is Tuesday, uh, class session number three, Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Thank you for joining us, Uh, Rabbi Berman. Thank you for this wonderful class. Have a great day. Chodesh Tov.